Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. Now, to tell you something, people, a great product. If you are a drummer, you have to get this. As you know, my good buddy, uh, Rich Redman, who uh, plays for Jason Aldean, who also plays for a bunch of other people, he uh, has a great, a great product out there. It's called Drumming in the Modern World. Now, here's the deal. If you want to learn how to play drums, want to get better at drums, or want to navigate the business better, because he's been living in Nashville for 20 years and has been making a great living, you want to get this product. And Rich, as you know, has been on Cooper Talk twice. He's a great guy, a motivational speaker, just a real positive cat. So go to www.drumminginthemodernworld.com. It's www.drumminginthemodernworld.com. Dot com and get Rich's product. I'm telling you, you up your drum game. I've been I do a lot of memes for him. That I post on uh, Twitter and so yeah. But anyway, we have a we have a great show today. We have a we have a guest who is a musician, is a writer, is a producer, is just a, is a I guess is a, a Renaissance woman. Uh, our guest is uh, Tracy Newman. How you doing, Tracy? I'm good. <laughs> I uh, I don't get called a Renaissance woman too often, so I'm, I'm laughing because I, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I read your bio, and I, you know, I go over, I do my research, and and you've done so much, and your and your path coming back to music is just fascinating. Now, you know, you grew up in LA, right? Uh, I yeah, I'm an LA, you know, a native. And now, as as a kid, I know you started playing music at a young age, but was your house and artistic household were, were your parents involved in the business or you no know, um not really uh, my mother uh and my real father i grew up in a household with a stepmother and my stepfather but my real father was an actor and my mother i think when she met him and when they married she was dancing or singing or something i mean you know i didn't see evidence of it in the house so i think they had given it up because making a living it was during the depression and they they couldn't uh, couldn't make a living, so uh, he became a shoe salesman, and she was a housewife, and that was it. Now, so no, the answer is no. But okay. later, you know, after when my stepfather was around, and the kids were my the twin brother and sister, you know, um, Lorraine, my sister's Lorraine Newman, you know that, right? <clears throat> so she has a twin, and when I was nine years old, they were born. And uh, things kind of changed in the household after that. It was a much lighter, uh, funnier environment. Now, when did you decide you wanted to start playing guitar? And as a kid, what kind of music were you listening to? I mean, it's so funny. We remember our first albums. I will admit it. You know, I'm 52. And my first album, I remember getting Tom Jones' Greatest Hits for Christmas. I don't know why I love Tom Jones. I still remember that. And I, God gave little green apples. Love the song. <laughs> I was like the only. No, I love both. I both those things. I love. Okay, <laughs> like the so only. I, uh, I'm a. I'm in my seventies, my early seventies. So you know, I. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners are close to my age, but I. I was in high school in the fifties, so the Platters and Elvis Presley and stuff like that. I mean, I and I was very, very, very into it. And started playing guitar when I was 14, and I was listening to rock and roll until folk music came along. <laughs> and folk music was stuff I could actually play, you know, because it was three chords. So um, I, I actually started performing really early. Where did you find folk music? What were the outlets for then? Because, you know, I think back to, you know, AM radio and how it was basically... 
they only played certain certain stuff, but folk music was a, pop, a new genre. Where did you find access to find folk music and start your love for it? Well, you know, the Kingston Trio. I mean, that was started happening uh, maybe a little after I was in high school. When I was in high school, though, I had uh, some cousins who were playing the guitar, and they would kind of have hoot, hoot nannies, and sometimes it was in our garage. My parents would let them use the garage, and I would be, they were slightly older than me, and I would just hang around them and really picked up a lot of folk songs from them. And then, uh, you know, I mean, people like Theodore Bikel and stuff like that, I mean, they were, they had people there at those hoot nannies at my parents' house that became big celebrities, but weren't at the time. So you're finding your love for, for folk music, and then when you're going through high school, you're, you're playing music. You're, you're, you know, you're learning your craft. And then now, is it true that your mother wanted you to go to college or, but did you want to, yeah. did you want to be a folk singer? Did you want to like, was that your goal? No, I didn't. I wanted to go away to college with my friends. So I went to the University of Arizona, but there was a really, really rich uh, folk scene there. And I started singing on the streets because um, that's what people were doing. <laughs> And uh, and doing some radio shows, because radio shows were just starting to play folk music. Actually, they'd been playing it a while. I mean, I just, I had just discovered it, though. And uh, I had a boyfriend who was uh, a really good guitar player. I learned a lot of guitar there. And, um, you know, there just was a real active scene there. So when my mother found out that that's what I was doing, I really didn't even attend college. I think I went to one or two classes. I didn't even bother to drop out. It was an irresponsible time. So, you know, I didn't. So, yeah, my mother dragged me back home to Los Angeles for therapy. And now how did that go? Um, not really well. I had, uh, I just, I had several therapists, but I, I remember one particular one where, uh, he he was right after lunch and he would fall asleep and I you know and I guess it was just that he was he couldn't relate to me. That's, he, didn't, he didn't understand what I was talking about. That's, that's like the worst. This is no lie. I uh, I try I tried to go to therapy once or twice and my therapist was just so bad. I was like, why? You know, I know should give him another chance, but I'm like I'm like this guy's awful and he would just like stare at me and I'm like. Can't you say something? <laughs> so well, I, I actually said, had good. I have and throughout my life. I've had some good therapists, but this man, this was the wrong person to send a teenager to. You know, I was nineteen or twenty. You know, it was the wrong person uh, because he was he was in a business suit for one thing. Okay. You know, I mean that that's, that was the time that it was though. Right. You know, it was just out of the fifties, and you were either a beadnik or you were with the establishment, and this guy was with the establishment. So what could he, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't relate to me. So, so you get out of that. Now, now, how'd you start getting into improv? And I know you started, uh, you start taking improv lessons soon, soon after that? Well, no, I, I was, uh, after, I, I was playing, you know, um, local, in, in Los Angeles, there was a pretty heavy folk scene also, so I was playing a lot of clubs here. And then um, I joined the New Christie Minstrels for a very brief time. I was really not the right fit for a, a group of 10 people who played guitar. 
But anyway, it was really fun. I loved it. But I and then I went to Europe with some friends. And then when I got back from Europe, I decided I wanted to go to New York. And um, when I went to New York, I used to hang around the Improv, which was at Forty Fourth and Ninth, the original Improv. Um, you know, the club, and I, uh, that was where I saw improv for the first time. I saw song improv, and I... Hello? Trace? Lost you there? Oh my God! That's was that you? I don't know. My, oh my! Really? It just, it just, I'm so it, sorry. Oh no, I it's fine. So much history. I don't want to repeat it. You, you just, just you know, no, I, you know, you just you said you were in New York and you saw improv. That's that's where I got cut off. All oh, right, I saw improv and then I I thought you know that's something I'd like to do and then a couple of years later I uh, there was a class that was being held at a place called the Cellar Theater in. Uh, um, on Vermont, here in L.A., by and run by a guy named Gary Austin, who eventually started the Groundlings. And that was the first class that became the Groundlings. That was the class where Lorraine, Lorraine came to that class. Um, and, um, you know, we started a group. Now, and that's where Lorraine was discovered for SNL. Now, growing up, did you and Lorraine ever talk about doing improv? Was that something that was, you know... No, no, no. She was... Uh, I was nine years older. Okay. That's a huge gap. And, you know, when they were little, I was like their second mommy, you know. But when, but then I left home when they became teenagers. You know, um, I'm sorry. Is that true? Is that... was like I, I left home when I was about... 18, so if I was, yeah, they were about nine when I left home. Okay. So before they became teenagers. So I knew them well. I can't say I didn't know them, but I didn't have a, I knew how funny Lorraine was, but I didn't know that she was going to go in that direction in her life. Now, when you started the Groundlings, in the back of your mind, did you ever think it would become what it is today, or was it just something that you were starting it and there was a, there was a need for improv and people wanted to do it? I mean, what did you think when you, when you were one of the founding members of this, this organization? Did you think it would be something <laughs> huge? It's so funny for me to hear you say there was, did I discover there was a need for improv? There's never a need for anything in show business. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like once you see improv, you realize, I guess, there's a need for it. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, what did I really? I didn't know until we opened the theater. When I, we opened the theater, and I looked at the talent that was there, yes, I did know, and I was probably one of the few people there that really believed that. And uh, mainly because I was teaching and directing, and not I wasn't performing as much as I had been at the beginning. Because and when I when I when I saw the level of the talent there. I just wasn't on that level, not as a performer, but I, I had a gift as a teacher and a director. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I felt it was the future of show business. Now, That's how I felt. Now, as you were, you were starting to teach and direct, 
Were you still playing your folk music, or were you were you putting that? I was I was playing guitar because you don't. It's not the kind of thing you stop usually. Um, and uh, I was doing some songwriting, and um, but I wasn't. I did some performing, but not, once the Groundlings really got off the ground, which was really in '75, no pun intended. But once we really started, I had no time for to be performing folk music and stuff, and I wasn't. Uh, that interested in that anymore. Um, I, that doesn't mean I didn't write songs and try to get my songs placed, and I still had a bit of a music career, but I wasn't playing around town anymore because I was in shows every weekend at the Groundlings. Now, I was the, in the Groundlings for like 15 years. Okay, well, now, in those early years, who were some of the talent that, that came out in the early years when you first started? Well, Lorraine, of course, was there, and she was the first one plucked out of there for... Uh, SNL, but then um, let's try. I'm trying to keep this in some sort of chronology. Uh, well, we, you know, the very first class was people like Pat Morita, who you know was in. I can't remember the name of it. The Karate, karate Kid. Karate Kid. Yeah, Karate Kid, and and Jack Sue, who I think was in Barney Miller, yes. and uh, Craig T. Nelson, and. Uh, um, Tim Matheson, who was the star of Animal House, uh, or one of the stars of Animal House. You know, there were quite a few celebrities that were already in just in that first class that became the Groundlings. But then as the company started happening, um, it was a little while before the, the actual, you know, the, before Lauren Michaels came back to the Groundlings and, and realized that, was, that, would, that should be his farm company because really... Uh, that's where he got Phil Hartman and John Lovitz, Julia Sweeney, um, Kathy Griffin's from there. She wasn't in the on SNL, but she was there. Lisa Kudrow. Uh, these were my, a lot of these people were my, were my students because I was teaching. Um, and um, uh, what's her name? Elvira. You know um, Cassandra Peterson and Pee Wee Herman. And um, oh, man, um, I, you know, I mean, it's a who's who. Melissa McCarthy, Will Ferrell, uh, Kristen Wiig. I mean, they're all groundlings. They're all from the groundlings. It's, it's just, it's an, it's an amazing farm company. Now, when you would teach, what, what would your classes consist of? Like when someone came and said, I want to be a groundling, would you sit there and would you and some other people decide they would audition if they could make it? And then there was, was there certain we people that you would mentor? Uh, I think, in fact, they still do that. They, we had auditions for it. Which, truthfully, between you and me at the time, I'm talking about now the 70s and 80s, the audition was just to find out if you were crazy. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you could follow directions and, and didn't suddenly become crazy on stage. So uh, we, we really tried to let everybody in, because this is before it was even a school. We would, you know, it would, a lot of people were in the classes, and the classes, by the way, became, I mean, I wrote the syllabus, that they're still using, uh, along with a couple of other people, Phyllis Katz and uh, Gary Austin and Tom Maxwell. We created the syllabus, which which we ripped off half of it from, you know, the Viola Spolin, which was the only book out there that we knew about. Um, we, we ripped off a lot of um, games that we put in the syllabus and then made up our own games, which is what happens when, you, when you're uh, teaching all the time. And... Um, we started teaching, I started teaching song improv and started a song company, you know, a um, 
song improv sort of wing of the groundlings and um so you know when you asked what we were doing we were playing uh improv games that we had read about that's what we were doing at the beginning now was there anyone that came in and just in that time that just you just went wow like so much so much talent went through the groundlings you know and it still does but was there anyone that like the first day you saw them you were just blown away thinking oh my god where did this person come from and, and thinking of what the stuff they're going to be capable of doing oh yeah i mean a lot of you know i'd say the first one that, that occurred to me like that was uh, phil hartman and uh and paul rubens Pee Wee herman i mean the their auditions, but Paul, uh, Phil Hartman didn't actually audition because he started earlier than, than Paul did. But when Paul Rubens showed up and he did his audition, it was like, you know, there were four or five of us that made the decisions that, that ran the auditions, and we would go into the office and talk about them, and we were just stunned by Paul Rubens. And then after that, there were, there were probably many more. But, you know, you, yeah, I mean, it's, when you see somebody like Lisa Kudrow on stage with 10 other people that aren't going to be stars, you know, right. they stand out. <laughs> but but I have to say there were also three or four, maybe five, maybe more than that, maybe like 10 people that I saw through my time at the Groundlings, maybe more than that, who were flat out brilliant and should have been big stars and just it just didn't happen. That must... You know, that must be so frustrating for like someone like you who's the teacher and you see that and you go, wow, and you must sit, sit I mean, yeah, but that's showbiz, it happens, but it, it must be frustrating when you well, see someone. Well, it's frustrating, but it's almost always a turn that they take in their own lives. I mean, you know, sometimes it's because they drink or do drugs, and sometimes it's because they, you know, decided, if it's some of the women earlier on decided to get married and leave town. You know, I mean, that was fairly common. Um and uh, or some of the men that were really talented could see that they weren't going to probably that the, there was too much heartache in trying to get work and, and failing, you know, and so they would just go into business, some kind of business. And a lot of us, uh, in my case, I, I turned to writing. I mean, I, I long ago gave up being an actress, you know, way at the very beginning. Um, and to went to start writing, and uh, I'd say half of the successful groundlings, people that became successful, did so as writers. There are just as many writers, maybe more so, uh, that come from the groundlings that than there are performers. Now, when you started writing, you found a writing partner, Jonathan Stark. How did that? Yeah, how did that happen? Did, did you? I, I knew him from the groundlings. And, but did you guys just hit it off? Did you guys think on the same wavelength? Because being a writing partner has got to be pretty, uh, it's got to be sometimes yeah, hard the work. The truth is we were, we were uh, looping. I don't know if you know what looping is. We were doing background voices on a movie. And, uh, you know, he just turned to me one day and said, uh, uh, the creators, the people who were running Cheers at the time, not the creators, but the people who were executive producing it, who were also, by the way, ex-groundlings, um, and had been my students, uh, he said they, they asked him to write a spec script, and, and he doesn't know how to type. He didn't know how to type, so he asked me if I would write it with him. And I thought about it. I looked at him, and I thought, he's really funny. I really have fun with him, and I know how to type, and I probably know how to tell a story. I didn't really know 
but I had been rewriting sketches for so long in the Groundlings. So, yeah, we were started writing spec scripts, and, and that was another time where I kind of could see my future a little bit because I had such faith in him and, and, and in my ability to kind of use him and, and vice versa. I mean, we were really kind of using each other. Now, was it intimidating at all? I mean, I know you had to, to write a, a script for a show like Cheers because it was very known. Well, you know, we, we were lucky knowing the executive producers, and they, they actually had us come over to their house, and they had us pitch a bunch of stories, and then they chose one and had us write it, and then they said no to us. So they, after we wrote the script, they, they said, we're not really looking for anybody right now, and I thought, well, that's too bad. Let's just start sending scripts around to other shows, and we wrote up, we wrote a Murphy Brown spec script, and then they called us about a year later and said, do you have any new spec scripts? So we sent them a Murphy Brown spec script, and we got hired. So you got hired on the... You know, what? You got hired on the Cheers. We got hired on Cheers for our Murphy Brown spec script. Now, what was that like, all of a sudden going into a writing room, because I'm sure it wasn't as... The instant, I mean, was, I'm sure it wasn't like being at the Groundlings. It had to be something a little more uh, like nine. No, there was nothing. I'd kidded that. As much as fun I've had in my life and all my endeavors, the Groundlings probably ranks uh, number one in terms of the most fun. You know, I mean, that was such an exciting time for me and for all of us, I think. Uh, but starting writing in television, was, especially starting on Cheers, was pretty damned exciting. But. Like every new job, you're starting at the bottom. You know, no matter how talented you are, you're going to walk into a situation that you've never done and you're going to not know what you're doing. So my partner and I, you know, he used to say, we're lower than the dirt under the floor here. <laughs> we didn't have an office. We used to have to, you know, stand around and wait till the room was, you know, so until all the writers were in the room because none of the new people had an office. So, you know, you were just waiting around for things to start, and we didn't have a place to go. We smoked back then, too, so we would usually go out by the dumpster and smoke. I mean, you know, it's like any other job at the beginning. You know, you're, it's a nine-to-five endeavor. So, yeah, we didn't fit, and they wouldn't listen to us. Nobody listened to us. And, of course, we didn't really have much to say. <laughs> we were terrified. So it was an uncomfortable, being on Cheers was an uncomfortable first year of kind of learning the ropes. And we couldn't have learned at a better place, by Right. The way. I was going to say that you must because have learned a lot because it was such a... Oh, yeah. It was, the tenth, it was their 10th season. Can you imagine the 10th season of Cheers? It was like a well-oiled machine. And that's how we thought shows were, were run. And then we started working on other shows and realized, no, that was pretty pretty unique. Now, we came in at 10 and we left at 6 at Cheers. Right. You know, <laughs> anything after that, we came in at 10 and we left at midnight, you know. Now, when you leave a show like Cheers, is it easy to parlay into another show because it's such a, yes, such a respected show? You start uh, at the top, which is what that was, uh, the industry doesn't look at you as in terms of what you actually are capable of or the fact that you're new. They treat you like, oh, she was on Cheers. So suddenly you have a cachet that you can parlay into uh, bigger jobs. And we we were very, very lucky. Well, you and next one... Start on Cheers. 
And you, what? You went to Bob after that, right? Yeah, we, we because we left the create the um, not the creators the uh, executive producers who hired us were leaving. That was their last year at Cheers. It was a, and Cheers ended the year after that. By the way, I think it was the. I think Cheers went to 1991 or 1992. We left in 91 with the the executive producers because they were creating Bob Newhart's new show, and they took us with them. And uh, once again, we were not not used very much because we were still so new. You know, they, they pretty much did all the work, the executive producers. But that must have also been a great learning, uh, Thing yeah, just to, to work and, and to yeah. work with Bob Newhart, who's such a genius. I mean, the guy, you know, oh. to, to this day you see him on TV, and he and he you see him in Big he's, Bang Theory, and he and kills as, it. You know, as, as a TV writer, to work with somebody who, when he doesn't like a line, he comes up to the writers. He's, he's so polite. He comes up to the writers and he has to, with, treats you with so much respect, and says, uh, instead of this. Do you mind if I say this? Well, when you have Bob Newhart rewriting his own jokes for you, uh, you what are you going to say? You know, no, Bob, I think there's a better way to say that. No, you, you just, you know, the fact that he's willing to do that is such a relief. Because, you know, when you're, when you're actually shooting a show and you're there on the, on the set, uh, things are moving pretty fast. And, and when, they, when they need a joke, we all have to huddle and start yelling jokes out until, until the executive producer chooses one, you know. So when the actor himself comes to you with his own pitch and you figure he's the one that's going to say it, <laughs> and he just said it to me and it was funny, let's use it. Now, you're working with... So, you know, what? No, you're working with all this talent. I mean, it must, as I said, it must be great. I mean, you know, from Cheers to Bob, and then eventually you end up on Ellen. Now, did did was what year did you get on the Ellen show? Well, we were there for four or five seasons, so must have been ninety four, ninety three or four. I mean, we went to the nanny, and then I think after the nanny, we were at Ellen. So. I'm sure there was something. I think that Hardball, that we were on a show called Hardball in between that, I think. I'm, I, I don't really have my years clear. I know that we wrote the coming out episode in 1996, so we had to have been there from 1994, I would say. Well, what was it like coming on that show? Because it was, it was Ellen wasn't as known as she is now, but I mean, in the comedy world, she was a, an amazing comic. What was that like going on with a newer talent when you had come from shows with much more proven talent? Mm-hmm. Well, we had, uh, my partner and I, you kind of have to understand the dynamic between my partner and I. I was like the good cop and he was the bad cop a lot of the time. And so sometimes a show for various reasons wouldn't want us. The star wouldn't want us. And in this case, the star, I feel, liked me, but she didn't like my partner. Um, he, his attitude toward her when we had our interview was not great. He didn't care whether we worked there. He, there, was other, there were other shows he would have rather been on because we kind of had our pick. And I felt that I, I, I really liked Ellen. I thought she was really funny, and I had a rapport with her, and that's where I wanted to work. And we weren't ready to split up yet, my partner and I, because we didn't know what we were doing. So um, 
we stayed there, but it, it, at first he he was not happy there. And then um, we did well there. You know, his jokes that we pitched jokes our first week that ended up in the on the show and worked really well. And uh, we were able to pitch show ideas, and they needed us at the time. I just feel they needed us. And uh, we stayed. We we didn't stay after she came out, but we were we were there for. You know, usually she would clean house after each season, but we always stayed. And, uh, you know, the executive producers would change, but we ended up staying. We were, we were just very lucky. Now, what was it like when you were writing the coming out episode? I mean, it was such unproven ground back then. I know you ended up winning an Emmy for that and a Peabody Award. What is it like that? And how does it come up in the writing, writing room? And who do they choose that's going to write the script? Uh, well, actually, that that was interesting, and I don't know why this happened, but the network and the studio chose my partner and I. And I have, you know, we all have ideas about, we all had ideas about why that happened. It could be that we were a man and a woman. Uh, we were we were not gay. Uh, there were some gay people on staff. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't really want a gay person writing it. I'm, I'm making this up because I really have no idea why this happened. Maybe we had been there the longest. That, that's also, that's a possibility. Uh, we just, we... First, it was in one-hour episode, you know. So John and I, we wrote the first half hour, which ends with her saying she's gay, um, on the PA at the airport. Right. And um, that whole year, though, that whole season was... Um, like something out of, uh, I don't even know. You know, I have my memories of, it's funny because the last couple of days I've had a cold, so I've been staying home, so I decided to go through some drawers of photos and stuff and throw some stuff away. And so today I just happened to open the box that said Ellen and uh, have been going through some of these scripts and, you know, reviews and pictures and stuff. And uh, so much of this I don't remember. You know, just looking at it, I just don't remember living through it. You know, I know that, it, that, that we were under a great deal of scrutiny the whole season. Uh, with the, we had to keep it secret. And, of course, it leaked anyway. And uh, so we were, the scripts were all, <laughs> we were given these scripts out. And they were printed on this magenta paper. So you couldn't you couldn't see it, you couldn't see the words. I mean, it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. You had to hold it at an angle so the glare hit it right, so you could read it. And because they were trying to keep it from the press, and so then they tried. Oh, that didn't work. Let's do it on white paper, but let's put everybody's initials on every page, so that if anybody's script gets copied from somebody in the outside, that initial will be on there. You know. They tried everything to try to catch who was leaking, right. but you know, <laughs> it, you, we never found out, and um, and it was a very rocky year. I mean, she got death threats, we got bomb threats, uh, the, the all you know all the the right wing, the conservative wings uh, all threatened to stop going to Disneyland, and um, you know there there was it, it was uh, scary. A scary time. Now, now, when the episode finally aired, and you said it was a scary time, was all that work. When when she finally came out, 
was there a, a sigh of relief for the writing staff because now you knew that you could write in a different direction? Well, no. It was the kind of thing we we that whole season, by the way. She didn't come out till the twenty-second show, I think it was twenty-second or twenty-third show in the twenty-five show season. And what we decided to do was have her come out toward the end of the season, and then have her tell her parents on another episode, or tell her friends on another episode, and then tell her parents. Whatever it was, we decided to do it at the end of the season, like that, almost at the end of the season. So there was a huge build-up all season to her coming out. And uh, once she did, though, it was like uh, once we finished the season, we all kind of, I'm sure, were, were questioning whether we knew how to write the next season if it stayed on the air. And we, we left. You left, and now is that when you uh, created, um, according to Jim? We, we, we went under, we, went, we started a development deal with, I think our development deal was already in place, but we started really trying to create um, create our own show. We wrote about eight pilots that were rejected, and but we were, you know, under contract there, so we had an office and we went to it. It was like a norm, normal, uh, it turned into a normal job for a while, going in there from, you know, for us it was from eight in the morning until uh, noon or so because we would work. We didn't have a social life together, so we would start work the minute we walked in and we would work four or five straight hours and have lunch and leave usually, whereas a lot wander in at two o'clock, sit on the on the corner of Goofy and, and Mickey, you know, on a bench <laughs> and smoke a cigar and then go into work at three o'clock and be there till midnight or something. We got our work done early. So we wrote a lot of pilots. Now what was it and uh Oh go ahead. We also worked on the Drew Carey show during that time. We worked on Hiller and Diller. We we uh, executive produced Hiller and Diller, which was really fun. It was Richard Lewis and Kevin Nealon and Gene Levy. And that was just a great show to work on. And uh, and it was an imagined show, so it was created by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who had written, <coughs> excuse me, who had written uh, Parenthood, the movie, and a number of other big things, but they didn't want to run the show day to day. So we, we learned how to run a show, and it wasn't our show, so it was kind of a fun, you know, free feeling. So... Um, but anyway, meanwhile, all during that time, we were trying to create our own show. And then finally, we, we, we just were positioned at, at the right place at the right time when they needed, ABC needed a family show. And uh, we, you know, were working on a family show. And then Jim Belushi became available. And it just sort of all fell together with some help from other people that were there. Now, what was it like when you started running the show? Coming back, you know, from being a writer and you said, you know, in Cheers, you didn't have any input. Now it's your show. You created it. How does the hats change? How do the roles change? Um, hmm. You know, I would like to say we were, because we had run Hiller and Diller, even though that didn't go a whole season, we had run a show. Um... I would like to say we had total control and we really understood what we were doing, but we really didn't. We had a great deal of help from uh, one of the, one particular executive at uh, at Disney, 
and uh, we we had to sort of work our way into this. My partner's mother died around that time. Um, now I might be that have that mixed up. It might be at the time when we were doing Hiller and Diller, but something happened where I had to do some staffing by myself, and I had never really had that responsibility all by myself. So, you know, it was starting at the beginning in certain ways again, but with a lot more experience. You know, um, I mean, every time you change a job, you're you're on a learning curve, even though. Uh, we had we had had a lot of experience, but we didn't. You know, when you're when you're a TV writer, even though you have the the credit of a producer, that's just how they move your credit up. They they don't you don't really necessarily. It's not like come, somebody should come to me and say we're going to produce this show. You're going to be the producer and you're going to do all the producing. No, I would do the writing. <laughs> you know. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't know the people to hire to run the to run the show. I don't really know them. I didn't really, you know. So I had to learn all that. Now, and my partner wasn't wasn't around for part of that. Now, when, what is it like when you finally do that first season and then it's renewed? That must be a great feeling because it's it's a great feeling, especially on a show like that, which was. Ignored and very much under the radar, sort of like I guess they did that with Seinfeld the first season too, where they did they kind of left it alone and they ignored it and they it got panned and it, you know, and uh, well, so our show was was panned, but also was under the radar in the sense that, that ABC had high hopes for uh, a new show that Jason Alexander was doing, and uh, they put they put their eggs in different baskets. And they kind of ignored us and didn't give us very many notes. So we were left alone, and we, we got a chance to develop a show that, that actually worked for them. Now, what do you... But I, it was very exciting, yeah, when it, took, when it got picked up. For, when it, hey, look, when the pilot got picked up, it was like, what? <laughs> we couldn't believe it. <laughs> now, what happens when you start getting picked up on that third season and the fourth season? Do you just start sort of... Well, I left. Oh, you left? I, I left after two seasons, yeah. I, I just... I decided I wanted to go back to being a singer-songwriter, even though I was uh, pretty old. You know, I was uh, starting to be in my 60s by then, and I thought, if I'm ever going to do this again, it better be now. Just because I look a little younger, you know, and act a little younger doesn't mean I am. So I, I just decided, you know, I started writing songs like Mad and, and getting back into performing, and I got a band together, and for 10 years, that's what I did. I just recently stopped not entirely, but just temporarily, because well, I'm doing, I've kind of moved into uh, doing kids' CDs, and I'm really having fun with that, so, you know. Um, but I only stayed for two years. The show stayed on for eight seasons, but when you when you create a show, you win the lottery. Right. So, so, so you know, I mean, that's what, you're, that's what you're trying to work to. You want to create a show, and then hopefully get out, <laughs> which is what I did. You get out. And now you decide to go back into music. Some people must have thought, "What is she doing? How do you?" Yeah, how, thought I was crazy. Yeah, they thought you were crazy, but it's what you love, and you followed your passion. So now, once you leave that, how do you sit there? Because you hadn't been really playing. I mean, I'm sure you said you've been writing, but you hadn't, you know, played for a long time. How do you sit there at that point and start to assemble a band? And how do you decide which direction you want to take your music in? Well, I didn't start with a band right away. What I did was I started uh, performing 
what I did was I was so scared that I went to, there's a place called Kulex in North Hollywood, which uh, it doesn't have a very big audience. It's usually, it only seats about 35 or 40 people, but it's a very warm environment. It's really in the open, open mic night. They, they videotape everything on five or six cameras. They show it all over the world, which doesn't really, you don't really connect to the fact that it's actually airing all over the world. You just connect to the fact that you get to walk home with a DVD to see what you're doing wrong. So I went every Monday night and sang the same song that I had just written until I could sing it and perform it without shaking. And so sometimes I was performing for three people and a dog and the camera, <laughs> you know. And so I, I just got, got so that I could perform without being so scared. We and uh, then I started getting gigs. People started hiring me. And then a couple people, one time there were two people in the audience who started singing along with me. And I asked them to come on stage. And they were terrific. And I uh, asked them if they wanted to be in a group. And that's how our group started. And then a drummer joined us. and a ba I mean, a bass player started, joined us first and then a drummer. And uh, one of the singers played the guitar as well as I did, or better, actually. And so I had a group. Now, now that's you, how it happened. Now, you said you were scared, but it's like you had been, I mean, you had been playing in the streets at a young age. You, you, you knew what you were doing. Why do you think, right. was it because you were going well, back to it? or? You know, one of the things that happens when you play an instrument is that if you haven't been practicing your instrument and you get on stage with it, the first thing to go is your physical ability to play. So I was not so nervous about performing as I was about uh, controlling my hands. So I spent all that time getting, you know, because I, I, I can perform, I can relate to an audience, I sing my words clearly, I can sing on pitch, and I can play guitar well. But if I get on stage and I'm not playing guitar well, that destroys everything. So I was practicing, kind of practicing like a crazy person, you know, hours and hours and hours a day. And the reason I did the same song every week was because I wanted to see if there was going to be improvement on that. I liked the song and I, I just wanted to, you know, see if, if after doing it 10 times in front of an audience on, and watching it on video, if my, my playing got good enough so that I wasn't, I didn't look nervous. So, you know, because you see people up there where you see their hands shaking. Right. It's usually somebody who hasn't played, you know, um, well, I mean, there's some people who are just flat out scared every time, and I'm not saying I'm not. You know, there's a level of nervousness no matter what. But, um, but when you're first starting, you, the thing that makes you look like an amateur is looking at your hands and not being, you know, screwing up your chords and not remembering what you're playing. And... Even though the audience, by the way, doesn't care, they really just want to be entertained. They're not. They're not out there judging you. They're. They're just. They just want to have fun, you know, or or be moved or whatever. But it's very hard to do that if you if your if your technical stuff isn't tight. Now, now you said you get playing the first song over and over. When you started getting gigs, how did you sit there and? decide what songs you would play because now you have to play longer well I had written you know a number of songs and 
I had practiced them, and once I got really good on that one song, then I started opening it up a little bit to other songs, and uh, it didn't take that many um, songs to start doing a show at small clubs. You know, I just needed, you know, five or six songs, because I would talk between songs, and, you know, I could do I could do a four-song or five-song set in 20 minutes. That's what That's what 20 minutes is. Half hours, maybe six or seven songs, maybe six songs. Because you introduce the song, and the song takes three, four minutes. I mean, there you are, you know. Right now. So I mean, now of course I have enough for two or three, four hours of, of you know, of a show or more than that. But uh, back then I didn't. Now, when when you put the band together, what is it like starting to perform with a band? Because you had been a solo act. So now it's different roles. I mean, did you have to, you know, adapt to that, or did it did it come naturally to you? I mean, what well, is that I like? I had to be a boss, uh, you know, be a boss again. I wasn't thrilled with that aspect of it, but um, you know, I, I knew how to do it. Um, so, and I started paying them too, which. Uh, because I had made money in television, I felt, you know, this is like all these musicians, they never get paid, I'm going to pay, if I can, you know, uh, it's not going to be too much, but it'll be enough so it matters to them, and uh, so they were all very professional, everybody in my band was really did their work, and uh, it became fun, for a long time it was really fun, and I only stopped doing it when it just stopped being that much fun for me. I, I wasn't writing as much. I was writing a lot of kids' songs, and I wasn't writing as many adult songs, and I just decided, you know, to, uh, to stop. Now, now, when did you decide to start writing kids' songs, and what took you to that way? Well, I, I kind of always had done that, but uh, I decided to do a kids' song because my daughter's an artist, and she, she was... Uh, I think she was about 29 or 30 when I first started doing that, and I asked her if she could do a coloring book, and I think that's how it happened. You know, now that I think of it, I'm not positive that the coloring book was my idea. I kind of think it was my idea, but uh, might have been her and me talking together. Um, but anyway, she, uh, we just sort of looked around and said, well, they don't seem to be any CDs with coloring books. They, they, they're out there with books, like a CD that's one song and a book, like Lisa Loeb, I think, does that, uh, and a couple of other people. But to have a coloring book where every song has a picture for, you know, you have, like I have 18 songs on my last CD for children, and there's 18 coloring book pages. That's a substantial gift for a kid. And um, so I, I, I had already written some songs. I just and I had, you know, what I chose was the songs I sang to my daughter when she was little that kept her engaged and then sort of drifted into lullabies so that she would fall asleep. So that's what that first CD is. It's playtime and bedtime. It's called I Can Swing Forever, and it's wonderful. I'm so proud of it. It is I won mean, a lot of awards. What? It is a great idea because you think about it, you know. You know, when you were a kid, you know, coloring was really big. And then as you get older, yeah. you, you like music. I mean, look, I mean, if someone had given me a Tom Jones coloring book with my Tom Jones album, I would have been the happiest guy in the world. I would have been drawing Tom Jones right. in his tuxedo. It would have been so cool. 
Ud and Perfect. So, yeah, well, also, you know, coloring books are popular now with yeah. adults. Yeah, they're, they're, they're making and a big they comeback. They're always popular with kids. So I, I love it. I mean, I, I really, I just am so proud of the project. So now I'm on my second one, and I've already got the material ready for the third one. Now you also so, re- yeah. you also released two of your own CDs of your music before that, right? Right. Yeah. Now, what is did you you know seeing that you ran a TV show and you have a background of running uh, you know doing writing a script and stuff like that and how a story arcs? Did you formulate how the tracks would go on your CD in that kind of way, or did you just say I want to put this song here, this song here, this song there? That's a really good question. You know, remember what it's like these days. I put my first CD out in 2007, and it was no different then than it has become now, which is that people buy a CD, they put it on their um, whatever they listen with. Sometimes it's uh, their phone. It used to be an um, iPod. Is that what it was called? Yeah. iPod. Yeah. You know, and and they they just choose sometimes just the songs they liked, or they change the order. So the order, well, it used to be so important, became less and less important. But I grew up at a time when it did matter. So my first CD, I walked. I used to walk every day. For, I still do, but I walked longer for a longer time. Back, in fact, I walked the length of my CD. That's what I did, <laughs> and I would listen to the whole thing with one order, and the next day I would change something and listen to the whole thing that way. And I liked that CD so much that it's sustained, like listening to it every day for a year. So I, that really stood the test of time, at least for me. And the order is perfect. I did not give that t- kind of time to my second CD because I realized that people didn't care about any of that as much as I did. And I didn't have the time the second time. But that first CD, I, I, I consider it to be just wonderful, you know. I'm very proud of that. The second CD, the material on it is great, um, and I love it, but it's, it wasn't like my firstborn. Right. You know? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that about the order and stuff like that, because, you know, I'm, you know, growing up on albums, you know, it was a thing where you knew there was a certain order, and then sometimes it was for the time, but then when cassettes came out, orders would change sometimes because they had to have the time constraints and it would throw you off. Right. Like I remember, you know, I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. Well, Born to Run, the album, was different than Born to Run, the cassette. There was a, two songs were switched on the sides and like you, when you walked and you knew it was in the right order of your own CD, when you listen to a, an album, it's in your mind what it sounds like and when, if it's, if something's switched or as you say, people now, you know, readjust their playlist to me it throws out throws away a lot of the whole listening experience I agree I mean they treat you like you did like you the fact that you liked it that way or that the artist liked it that way that that doesn't even matter but it does matter now when you write the kids songs how is the writing process different than when you write you were writing your folk songs are they shorter in length because the kids have a shorter attention span or how do you create that whole song? Um, is it, well, I have to say, I'm sorry to say this, for the people who write children's songs might wring my neck, but it's easier to write a children's song than it is to write one for adults. Now, you would, most people would think, well, obviously, that's true. 
But people who really, really write kids' songs would probably be offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> but having written both, and consider I consider myself a very hard worker, and I won't put out something that I wouldn't be comfortable singing in front of people and really, you know, trying to engage my audience, I do feel that it is a little bit easier. It's a much more forgiving audience. The melody, the, the melody matters. You know, the music matters whether it's adults or kids. But the, I lean on melody more with children than I do, I guess, with adults. I'm not sure that's totally true. I mean, I guess what it is is like if you really have something to say, the melody matters. But if what you're concentrating more on is the words, and that's the kind of performer you are, then that's really, it's very hard. It's really hard to get the words right so that the audience is with you the whole time and understands what you're saying and feels moved or, or laughs or whatever. Now, children's songs, you know, you can write a children's ditty faster. I can't, anyway. Now, how do you figure out what age group you're writing to and will that change as your children's writing goes on? Um, I really, I guess I feel I'm writing to babies, you know, when they're first born, <laughs> that age all the way up to about probably 9 or 10. It depends on the 9 or 10-year-old. I mean, if they, excuse me, are exposed to adult music all the time and, and are listening to the Disney kind of music and, and songs and both that stuff they love, mm, I don't know how much they'll like my stuff. Now, Mine's a little bit more old-fashioned, I would say. Now, when will your second CD be done? Um, the second kid's CD should be... It's, it's actually the music's done. It hasn't been mastered, but it's already mixed. Uh, and the coloring pages, the coloring book pages are, um, are actually mostly done. It's almost entirely done. It's the packaging that takes... It's like once you get that done, the packaging of a children's thing is much more complicated, at least this particular project, because of the coloring book. So I haven't started that. I'm just, I'm just starting that now. And then you have... So I'd say a couple of months. And then you have material for your third CD almost. Yeah, that's already written, yeah. Now will that be with a coloring book too? Is that going to be the whole... Yeah, I'm okay. going to keep doing this. I think it's really good. I see how kids are with this, and they're terrific. Now, have I love you, it. Have you played any gigs in front of the kids? Um, you know, I used to do it when my daughter was little. I used to go to her school, and I did. Um, I did, very, and I also had in in the nineteen sixty five. I had a children's show on television um, in New, uh, that came out of New York. Um, that uh, you can see on. Um, I mean, if you want to see what I looked like forty years ago or whatever, uh, you can go and go um, on YouTube. You know, write Tracy Newman, and then write uh, What's New. Okay. Just write that, and you'll find uh, all these terrific videos of me doing, you know, in black and white, doing this show. And it's really, it's quite fun. It really is. It's like I have about, I don't know how many videos are up right now, but I have 60 of them, and I have, I just haven't put them all out. I put maybe 10 or 12 out on YouTube. And now will you and, do... Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, will you be doing any... Uh, will you be going back to the... I don't know if I'll be performing. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, are you, you going to go back to the folk singing and performing? 
I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with performing right now. I don't. I just don't think I wasn't really having fun over the last year with it very much. So um, the last show I did, which was by myself, I didn't have my band. I it was right after Dylan won the Nobel Prize, so it was like October something of last year, and I I did a house concert, and I decided to do uh, along with my own regular stuff. I did a bunch of Dylan songs, and that really gave me a lot of pleasure to learn, really learn. I mean, I already knew some of those songs, but I mean, I really learned some of them. And uh, it's not like I had to learn, to, you know, to be, I didn't need to cultivate an appreciation of Bob Dylan. I already had it. But to actually do his songs, I, I'd kind of forgotten how great the music was. You know, I we tend to concentrate on his words, but, you know, his music was great, too, is great. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe I'll do a little more of that. I don't know. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. I did a couple shows where I used some Dylan songs, and it was unusual for me. People hadn't heard that from me. Well, that's good. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm glad you got message back to me. I'm glad we could set this up because I was really enjoyed talking to you. You've had, as I said, a very. I totally enjoyed this. It's been great. You've, you've had, but <laughs> well, you've had a very fascinating career. I mean, it's just, it's like it's gone full circle. You started off in music, and then you got into the improv and the TV writing. Now you're back into music, and and you're growing as a musician, writing uh, kids' books, and that's always great to see. So your website. People, her website is tracynewman.com. Very nice website. It's very informative, people. There's a lot of info up there. And uh, do you, are you on Twitter at all or no? Um, somewhat. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. If you don't ask me my okay. um, <laughs> my URL, is that what it's called? Don't yeah, ask Twitter. Me that I don't remember what. I'm on Facebook, though. <laughs> well, people, look you up know, Tracy yeah, I'm Newman. On Twitter. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on. It was great talking to you. And people, so go Google. Go Google her and go, go go to the YouTube and watch this stuff and go listen yeah, to her you music. Can, YouTube those what's new things, Tracy Newman, what's new. You'll get a kick out of that. Check that out because I'm going to do that later today. And people, follow me mm-hmm. on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk on Twitter. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over 580 episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Uh, Words with friends and Instagram, coopertalk1. And remember, on Instagram, I put up... Uh, promotion for the show and a lot of pictures of food because as you know a few years ago when I had the heart condition when I got out of hospital I decided to write a cookbook so you can go to get it at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com or you can go to my website stopthesalt.com you can buy it there I wish you would buy it there because I would make more money off it that way and I'll even <laughs> sign it for you so go go follow me on twitter at coopertalk coopertalk.net email me cooper at coopertalk.net Please go to Tracy's website, look up her music, listen to her, buy your kids a book. You know what? Your kids probably want to hear songs and they can also, they can color. So it's one of those things, if you want to watch some TV, you know, you put some headphones on these kids, you get them coloring and they're set. So anyway, people, I'll talk to you next week. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.